This podcast is brought to you by Free Buddhist Audio, the Dharma for your life. Our work is funded entirely by donations from our generous listeners. If you would like to help us keep this free, make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. Thank you and happy listening. So the title of this event, as you all know, is uh, The Alchemy of the Dharma. And uh, in the blurb on the website, it said, Alchemy is a magical art of turning base materials into gold, a potent metaphor for what we are trying to do in our Dharma lives. I have to have the glasses on the end of my nose, and then I, I can't see you if I do that, so I'll have to do this like this. <laughs> my task this morning is to answer the question, how do we transform the base material of ourselves into gold or into personal riches? This is still from the website. So, the magical art of turning base materials into gold. So, what is the base material of ourselves? What is the gold we are trying to transform ourselves into? And is this transformation in some way magical? The Buddha was once asked to perform a miracle, but he refused to do so, saying that the only miracle, the only miracle that Buddhists perform is to free people from greed, hatred and delusion. So that more or less answers uh, all those three questions, really. (laughs) So the base material of ourselves is greed, hatred and delusion. That's what we're working with. And the gold we're trying to transform ourselves into is freedom from greed, hatred and delusion. And that transformation is, according to the Buddha, miraculous, or we could say magical. But strictly speaking, the Buddhas don't perform it. They don't transform us. They show us how we can transform ourselves. We perform the miracle. We do the magic. And the Buddha gave us a very graphic image for this transformation in the Sutta of the Snake, the Uruga Sutta, which is the first Sutta of the Sutta Nipata. There are 17 verses in this text, four-line verses. And uh, each one ends with this refrain. That bhikkhu lets go both the near and the far shores. Like a snake, it's worn out old skin. For example, verse one, one who controls anger when it has arisen, that bhikkhu lets but go both the near and far shores. Like a snake, it's worn out old skin. Second verse, one who completely uproots compulsion, etc., etc. Like a snake, it's old, worn-out skin. Verse 3, one who completely cuts off all craving, like a snake, it's worn-out old skin. So just say a few words about the bhikkhu. The the bhikkhu is the one who does this. Well, the bhikkhu, um, as Analio has pointed out in those old texts, what bhikkhu really means is the Buddhist practitioner. And what about the near and the far shores? That bhikkhu lets go both the near and the far shores, which is a surprising thing to say, really, because we usually think that the near shore is 
where we're at, the state of ignorance, the state of unenlightenment, and the far shore is enlightenment. So you'd think that the Buddha would say, leave the near shore and go to the far shore, but he says, leave both. And um, uh, it's not easy to know exactly what that means. The traditional commentary of the Sutta gives six different possible meanings for that phrase. Some of them incompatible with each other, they're contradictory which tells us that the commentator didn't know what it meant. <laughs> Likewise, there is disagreement among contemporary scholars about its meaning. Towards the end of this talk, I'll suggest a possible meaning. But what I'm interested in now is the image of the snake shedding its skin. This would have been a very common sight for the Buddha, wouldn't it? And the people he was talking to because the Buddha always used images from his living life world and the life world that people are living in. So it, this is an image that would be very, very familiar to them. Not so for us. I, I've never seen a snake shedding its skin. So a little bit of information gleaned from the internet, of course. So all animals shed their skin. In mammals, especially humans, this is an ongoing process that we don't really notice, it's happening all the time. Apparently a lot of household dust is skin that's fallen off. Over a 24-hour period, apparently, you lose almost a million skin cells. In one year, you'll shed more than eight pounds, this is for the English people, or 3.6 kilograms from people from the rest of Europe. <laughs> of dead skin, all that's coming off us. Yeah. <laughs> skin shedding in reptiles is different. Instead of an ongoing process, reptiles shed their skin periodically. And snakes apparently are even more unique in this respect because their skin usually all comes off in one piece. So unlike human skin, a snake's skin doesn't grow as the snake grows. As the snake grows, its skin becomes stretched and eventually it reaches a point where it can't grow anymore in that skin. And when that occurs, a new layer of skin grows underneath the current one. And when that's complete, the old skin peels away, leaving behind a snake-shaped shell. You may have seen one of those in the woods. So apparently the average snake will shed its skin two to four times a year. This varies with age and species. However, hope you're finding this interesting. It's rather a lot, isn't it? I've just realized I'm saying an awful lot about this. But um, young snakes that are actively growing may shed their skin every two weeks. Others, other snakes might only shed their skin twice a year. So that's enough. But the image of a snake shedding its old, worn-out skin is, when the Buddha uses it in this sutta, a symbol of transformation. It's a symbol of spiritual death and spiritual rebirth. Death of the old, worn-out self and rebirth of a new, shining self. So, spiritual death and spiritual rebirth. These are, of course, two of the five great stages of the spiritual life, which I'm sure you're all familiar with. Uh, integration, positive emotion, spiritual death, spiritual rebirth, and spiritual receptivity. Now, 
we're familiar with that um, formulation. But the first time that Banty introduced the five great stages was in the summer of 1976 on a seminar on a text by Nagarjuna called The Precious Garland. The five stages aren't mentioned in that text, but it was something that Banty had been thinking about. And one morning on that seminar, he just came down, sat down and said, this has been something I've been thinking about and I want to share it with you. So he did. And um, what's interesting, this is when he first talked about the five great stages and their relevance to us. But in this first iteration of the five great stages, the third and the fourth stage, what we call spiritual death and spiritual rebirth, he called at that time the stage of vision and the stage of transformation. He did use the terms death and rebirth as well, but only in trying to explain what he meant by vision and transformation. So, Spiritual death is vision or insight, and spiritual rebirth is transformation. And this, of course, takes us right back to Bante's lecture series on the Eightfold Path, which he called Vision and Transformation, and in which he divided the Eightfold Path into two paths. The first path was the path of vision, and that was the first stage of the Eightfold Path, and this, the, the remaining seven stages he called the Path of Transformation. So the Path of Vision is made up of just the first limb, Samarditi, perfect vision. He also made the point that, in a sense, there are two Eightfold Paths. There's the mundane Eightfold Path and the, trans and the transcendental Eightfold Path. This is all stuff that I'm sure you already know. Um, the mundane Eightfold Path begins with Samarditi, understood as right understanding. And the rest of the path, the path of transformation, is based on this right or correct understanding of the Dharma. The transcendental Eightfold Path begins with Samarditi, understood as perfect vision or transcendental insight. But I just want to revisit this idea of right view, mundane Samarditi which we think of as right understanding. But the Pali term, samarditi, so ditti means view or vision, and samar can mean right. It can mean right or correct, but actually its primary meaning is connected in one. Samar, connected in one. So right view can be understood to be not so much a correct understanding of Buddhism, of the Dharma, as much as a whole connected up understanding of the world. And I like to suggest that Samarditi, mundane Samarditi, is more than merely a conceptual understanding of the Dharma, but is also an imaginative vision. I don't mean imaginary vision. I don't mean dreaming things up which aren't real or even plausible. By imaginative vision, I mean a kind of whole understanding of the world, a clear-sighted awareness of the limitations of the world and also what may be possible. So, in the Arya Pariyasana Sutta, the Buddha tells the story of his life. And he says that when he was a young man, while he was still living at home, he saw, he saw that people 
being themselves subject to birth, seek happiness in what is likewise subject to birth. Being subject to aging, to illness, to death, to sorrow and defilement, they seek happiness in what is likewise subject to death, etc., etc. And then he says he had this thought. Why do I, being subject to birth, seek what is likewise subject to birth? Be myself subject to ageing, illness, death, sorrow, defilement. Why do I seek what is likewise subject to death, etc.? And then he had another thought. What if I were to seek the unborn? What if I were to seek the aging less, the illness less, the deathless, the sorrowless awakening? That's quite a thought, isn't it? But it wasn't just a thought. It was expressive of what I'm call, calling an imaginative vision, a vision strong enough, powerful enough to propel him to leave home and spend many years trying to realize his vision. It propelled him onto the path of transformation. In one of Emily Dickinson's poems, she says, the possible's slow fuse is lit by the imagination. Isn't that brilliant? The possible's slow fuse is lit by the imagination. Here's the whole poem, it's only four lines long. The gleam of an heroic act, such strange illumination, the possible's slow fuse is lit by the imagination. Incidentally, I looked up transformation in the Pali dictionary to see what word would correspond to it. And the closest that I could come to, the closest Pali word that corresponds to transformation is viparivata, which means changing or turning round or upset. And coming from that word viparivata, viparivatana, meaning changing, change, reverse. Rather like the Sanskrit term paravritti, which means return, ref reversal, even restoration. And in the Yogacara tradition, of course, we get the ashraya paravritti, the turning about in the deepest seat of consciousness. There's a very interesting article by the scholar Pierre Ador, the scholar of ancient Greek and Roman philosophy, on the experience of conversion, which is very much connected with transformation. It's interesting, you know, with these online dictionaries, I'm going off piece now, translators. Um, with these um, modern online dictionaries, you get, the, you get the meaning of the word, and then you can see over the last century or so how popular that word has been. And it's interesting that conversion used to be very popular, and it's really going down now, it's going down. But transformation was hardly used, and now it's going up. But they mean more or less the same thing. The Latin word, conversio, means a change of direction. According to Adol, conversio corresponds to two Greek words. First one, epistrophe, change of orientation. And it implies the idea of a return, return to the origin, return to the self. And the second uh, word is metanoia, which means change of mind, repentance, 
and implies the idea of a mutation and the rebirth. So the snake shedding its skin seems to me an image that expresses both a reversal or a return and a transformation, a transmutation, a rebirth into something or someone different, into someone new. So both. Years ago, the Manchester Buddhist Centre collaborated with the Manchester City Art Gallery on an exhibition of Buddhist art. It was our idea, actually. We went to the art gallery and suggested they did this, and to our delight, they did. And one of the most striking pieces in the exhibition was a small Japanese ivory statue of a monk. Only about that big. And the monk was tearing his head apart like this, or his face open like this, and beneath this old monk's face was a young face. So it was like, almost like the spiritual life was one of tearing apart the old and coming into the new. In a way, coming back to one's real self. So when we change, when we transform, in a sense we become a new person. But in another sense we become more truly who we really are. So as we grow towards awakening, in one sense we become more like one another, more aware, more integrated, um, more ethical, kinder, wiser, etc. So we become more aware in that sense. But in another sense, we become more differentiated from each other, more individual, more sharply defined, more individuated, might, you might say. <coughs> so the story of the ugly duckling by the Danish author Hans Christian Andersen is a story of transformation in both of those senses. Both senses in the sense of becoming something new, but also returning to what you really are. Some of you may know the story of the um, ugly duckling from the famous song uh, sung by Danny Kay, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Get out. Get out. Get out of town. You know the one? Do, do people in other parts of the world know that song? Yeah. I did think of uh, basing the whole talk, uh, uh, be, it would be a commentary on that, that story, but in the end I decided not to. But you could make a, a very good talk about that. But anyway, it begins with a duck sitting on her eggs in some reeds. One of the eggs is much bigger than the others. Another duck comes along, sees the large egg, and says, that's a turkey. And she advises the mother to destroy it. But the mother, egg, the mother duck doesn't want to do that and continues to brood over it. After a few days, um, the, the, the small eggs hatch, but the large one doesn't. The duck continues to sit on the egg, though, and a few days later, that large egg hatches. Unfortunately, what emerges seems to be a very large and ugly duckling. The mother is afraid that perhaps it's actually a turkey, but she takes it to the river just to see if it might swim, and if it swims, it's not a turkey. So she does that. So happily, it does swim, but all the other ducks and ducklings, not to mention all the other birds, and even the local cat turn against it. And at one point, the poor little thing is attacked by a turkey. 
Unfortunately, it doesn't get any better for him. And it is a him. The duckling is a him. And he has to flee. Then begins a whole series of misadventures. Wherever the ugly duckling goes, he's rejected. It's a terrible story of rejection. Um, eventually, at the beginning of winter, he makes his way to a lake and decides to try to survive the winter on his own. Before winter sets in, though, he sees a flock of birds overhead flying. So, over to Anderson now. I'm going to read you Anderson. The duckling had never seen any like them before. They were swans, and they curved their graceful necks, while their soft plumage shone with dazzling whiteness. They uttered a singular cry as they spread their glorious wings and flew across from those cold regions to warmer countries across the sea. As they mounted higher and higher in the air, the ugly duckling felt quite a strange sensation as he watched them. He whirled himself about in the water like a wheel, stretched out his neck towards them and, and uttered a cry so strange that it frightened himself. When at last they were out of sight, he dived under the water and rose again, almost beside himself with excitement. He knew not the names of those birds, nor where they had flown to, but he felt towards them as he had never felt for any other bird in the world. He was not envious of those beautiful creatures, but wished to be as lovely as they. Poor ugly creature, how gladly he would have lived even with the ducks had they only given him encouragement. The story goes on, but we're going to return to the story at the end of the winter. Next spring, the ugly duckling left the lake and found himself in a garden. Back to Anderson's words now. Everything looked beautiful. In the freshness of early spring, from a thicket close by came three beautiful swans, ruffling their feathers and swimming lightly over the smooth water. The duckling remembered the lovely birds and felt more strangely unhappy than ever. I will fly to those royal birds, he exclaimed, and they will kill me because I am so ugly and dare to approach them. But it does not matter. Better be killed by them than pecked by the ducks, beaten by the hens, pushed about by the maiden who feeds the poultry or starve with hunger in the winter. Then he flew into the water and swam towards the beautiful swans. As soon as they saw him, they rushed to meet him with outstretched wings. Kill me, he said. <laughs> and he bent his head down to the surface of the water and awaited death. But what did he see in the clear stream below? His own image, no longer a dark grey bird, ugly and disagreeable to look at, but a graceful and beautiful swan. Now, it doesn't take a genius to understand the symbolism of this story, but I'm going to spell it out anyway. <laughs> First of all, the duckling was never a duckling. He was, in fact, a cygnet, a baby swan. 
The egg that held him, we could say, was the Tathagatagaba, the womb of Buddhahood or the seed of Buddhahood, although in this case it was the swoom of swanhood. So when later he saw those swans flying south, he recognised something, something in himself, his own potential for swanhood. Seeing those swans and the effect they had on him was, we could say, an imaginative vision. It was rather like the fourth sight of Siddhartha, the wandering mendicant. So Siddhartha, as you know, had already seen the first three sights, the old man, the sick man, the dead man. In other words, he'd seen the inherent suffering of human existence. And then he saw the wandering mendicant and sensed, intuited, that this was the way out. The ugly duckling had, of course, experienced suffering firsthand. Somehow we got through the winter, and then the following spring he came across these three beautiful swans, and he expected them to kill him. And instead of resisting that, he gave himself up to them. He was prepared to die. But as he bowed his head to them, he saw his own reflection, and he saw that he was not a duckling at all, not even a duck, but a swan. He wouldn't have seen this if he hadn't been prepared to die. His death wasn't a physical death, but a spiritual death, which was necessary for, for him to be reborn as a swan. And his rebirth as a swan was not a rebirth into something completely different. As we've seen, he never was a duckling. That was all just a big, unfortunate mistake, a case of mistaken identity. And yet he wasn't a swan either, not yet. He was a signet with the potential to be a swan, but not yet one. Of course, we all know that in the real world, the real world, whatever that is, signets become swans as a matter of course, as long as they live long enough. But this is a fairy story, so we shouldn't take it too literally. And anyway, baby swans, signets, are not ugly. Actually, nor are ducklings ugly. In the story, the ugly ducklings bowing before the swans and offering his life to them is the necessary condition to him realising his innate swanhood, to his becoming a swan. It's the spiritual death that has to occur before spiritual rebirth. So that's the story of the ugly duckling. And in this story, there's just one big dramatic transformation. But the spiritual life, of course, consists of many, many small transformations, many small spiritual deaths and rebirths, which is why the Buddha used the image of the snake, which sheds its skin regularly, not just once. I said earlier that the closest Pali equivalent to the English word transformation seems to be viparivata. But in this lecture series on the eightfold, in his lecture series on the eightfold path, the word that Bhante translates as transformation is actually bhavana, and you know what bhavana means, as in meta bhavana, it means development, cultivation. But bhavana comes from the word bhava, which means becoming. Uh, the word usually translated, for instance, as rebirth, is puna bhava, again becoming. And this is a really important idea in Buddhism, that existence 
is a state of becoming rather than a state of being. That's because the nature of existence is dynamic, not static. The world and everything in it is constantly becoming. And things are either becoming again what they were just now, or they're becoming something different. And so we are continually becoming, continually becoming. And we can choose to become again what we have been, or we can choose to become someone different, hopefully better. And bhavana is the systematic process of becoming, being reborn as someone better. And that's why it's the path of transformation, bhavana, marga. So the reason the snake sheds its skin, you'll remember, is that the skin is old and worn out and has become too small. The snake has got, literally got to break out of that skin, out of that limiting, restricting confinement. And so it is for us, spiritually speaking. We all have an idea of who or what we are, called self-view. And this idea is not exactly accurate. It doesn't fit as well as the snake's new skin fits. But see, it's adequate. It will do for now. With it, we manage to function pretty well in the world on the whole. But this idea about who we are, what we're like, although allowing us to function in the world, is also limiting, it's restricting, it's confining, ultimately. Because we are more than our self-view, more than our ideas about ourself can hold. And if we're practicing the Dharma, we begin to outgrow our current ideas of who we are. We begin to feel their restrictive nature and we want to break out. So it's not that we have no self at all. It's that we have a changing self, a becoming self. And we have to allow for that changing self to change, to become a new self. So returning for a moment to the Sutra of the Snake, although I've said that the image of the snake shedding its skin is a symbol of spiritual death and rebirth, as someone pointed out to me one day in a study group, although the image is one of spiritual death and spiritual rebirth, the verses of the Sutta are all about spiritual death. He only talks about what the bhikkhu leaves behind or lets go of, not what he becomes. He controls anger when it has arisen. That bhikkhu lets go both the near and the far shores like a snake its worn out old skin. He completely uproots compulsion. He completely cuts off all craving. You're not, you're not given a picture of what that looks like in a positive sense. And this is um, typical of the Buddha in the Pali Canon. He doesn't really describe the positive aspect of transformation very much. He does sometimes, but not very much. Um, you remember right at the beginning of the talk, I, I quoted, you know, the Buddha more or less quoted him, saying that the only miracle that Buddhas perform is to free people from greed, hatred and delusion. But he didn't say what emerges from that, except for freedom from greed, hatred and delusion. So this is very common in the Pali Canon. The big exception to this is his teaching of the positive Nidanas, what we call the spiral path. In this teaching, he outlines a sequence of increasingly positive or skillful states, each one arising from the previous one. And we could say that the arising of each positive Nidana is a rebirth, 
from a relatively positive but limited self to a more positive, less limited self until it reaches its apotheosis. Hope you've got that, um, apotheosis in awakening, where all limitations have disappeared. There's no limitations at all. So, whereas the Sutra of the Snake emphasizes the shedding of the old, worn out skin, the teaching of the positive Nidanas emphasizes the new, resplendent snake that emerges from that old skin. Now, there are different versions of the spiral path, and there's an interesting one called the Chaitanya Sutta, which begins not with um, Dukkha leading to faith, but it begins with Sila ethical behavior or virtue, and arising from that freedom from remorse, or we could say a clear conscience. And then arising from that comes joy, and then it goes on in the way we're used to, joy, rapture, etc. What's interesting about this particular sutta is what the Buddha says about how each nidana arises from the previous one. He says, for instance, for a person endowed with virtue, consummate in virtue, there is no need for an act of will. May freedom from remorse arise in me. It is in the nature of things that freedom from remorse arises in a person endowed with virtue, consummate in virtue. And then... From, for a person free from remorse, there is no need for an act of will. May joy arise in me. It is in the nature of things that joy arises in a person free from remorse or with a clear conscience. And it goes on like this all the way up <coughs> to enlightenment. So this act of will, this is the word chaitana, which also means active thought, intention, purpose, will. So some translators have, there is no need to have the thought, may freedom from remorse arise in me. And one translator even has, an ethical person need not make a wish, may freedom from remorse arise in me. And why is that? Because, as the Buddha says, it's in the nature of things that freedom from remorse arises in a person endowed with virtue. It's natural that freedom from remorse arises. So, the nature of things, or natural, is dhammata, which according to the Pali English Dictionary means conformity to the dharma niyama, or higher law, cosmic law. What this means is that we don't have to try to get to the next stage. We don't even have to think about it or wish to be there. We don't have to try to make progress. We simply practice at the stage we're at, and the next stage unfolds naturally in its own good time. It's not that we don't have to do anything, of course. We have to make an effort. We have to practice. What we don't have to do is try to get to the next stage. That happens naturally. We don't make it happen. It's, as it were, involuntary. It happens to us. So the spiral path describes a sequence of willed effort followed by involuntary transformation. Willed effort, transformation. We could say bhavana followed by viparivata. Cultivation, transformation. Cultivation, transformation.
But if our spiritual transformation is natural, as the Buddha says, if it follows a natural law, then it can't be magical or miraculous. But that is to misunderstand magic. <laughs> we only call things magical or miraculous when we don't understand them, when we don't know why they've occurred, when they can't explain it. This doesn't mean, that doesn't mean they're not following a natural law. It just means we don't know how it happened. And we don't know how the spiritual life happens. The Buddha only explained how we change, how we transform. He never explained, never once, why it happens. Never once did he tell us why. Why does joy arise in dependence on a clear conscience? We know it does, but we can't say why. Why does rapture arise in dependence upon joy? Pfft, who knows? And it doesn't matter, does it? We don't need to know. The Buddha only taught on a need-to-know basis. <laughs> So we don't know why. Each transformation is, therefore, although natural, also magical. Early, I early on, I mentioned the scholar of ancient Western philosophy, Pierre Adorn. I'm going to come back to him because in his book, Philosophy as a Way of Life, in a chapter on the spiritual practices of the ancient Greek philosophical schools, he makes what I think is a very important point. He says that in all spiritual practices, we must let ourselves be changed. You must let yourself be changed. We practice and practice and practice, but we have to let ourselves be changed. We could say we have to let transformation happen to us. And this seems connected to what the Buddha says in the Chaitanya Sutta. Spiritual transformation happens naturally. And although you do have to make an effort, a part of that effort is letting yourself change. Just going off piste again, just for a minute. Um, I was just thinking uh, this morning, in the early hours of the morning, that is, that um, uh, this is what the uh, second fet is all about, isn't it? Dependence upon rites and rituals as ends in themselves. What it's saying is, you can practice and practice and practice all you like, till the cows come home, let's say. You can practice, practice, practice. But if you don't let yourself change in that practice, you're not going to change. So that's what that second fetter is, practicing, practicing, without letting yourself change. And this is the secret. This is the alchemical secret of the spiritual transformation, that somehow we let ourselves be changed. It's a little bit like the mindfulness of breathing. Breathe in, breathe out. Breathe in, breathe out. Make effort, let yourself change. Make effort, let change happen. Make effort, allow the magical transformation to occur. All the way to the great transformation, full awakening. Which is, of course, beyond birth and death. The path consists in a sequence of births and deaths. But the goal is beyond that duality. And this may be what that line from the Sutta of the snake is referring to. That bhikkhu leaves both the near and the far shore, like a snake sheds its old worn out skin. Perhaps the near shore is birth and the far shore is death. That bhikkhu leaves both birth and death, like a snake sheds its worn out old skin. 
works, doesn't it? It works, whether it's right or not, it works. So we're coming to the end now. Two more little stories. There's a sutta in which one of the Buddha's lay followers, you really need to know about this guy actually going off pissed here. You really need to know about this man. His, his name is Lak, uh, Nakula Pitta, which is a long word, which is hard to say. But Pitta means father. So he's Nakula's father. And Nakula Pitta's wife is Nakula Mata, which means Nakula's mother. So they're both Nakula's parents. No one knows who Nakula is, <laughs> but it doesn't matter. But uh, we, we join the story when he goes to see the Buddha. He's one of the Buddha's main lay disciples. And he tells the Buddha he, that he's now a feeble old man, having come to the last stage of his life. That is, he knows he's approaching death. He says he's afflicted in body and suffering with every moment. And he asks the Buddha for a teaching appropriate to his situation, which the Buddha does. And the Buddha says, so you should train yourself, seek her, you should train yourself. Even though I may be afflicted in body, my mind will not be afflicted. That's how you should train yourself. That's all the Buddha says to him. Immediately after this, Nakulapitta goes to see Sariputta. And Sariputta, as soon as he sees him, he says, wow. I don't know if they said wow in those days, but something along those lines. Your faculties are clear and calm, householder. Your complexion is pure. Have you had the opportunity today of listening to a Dharma talk in the presence of the Blessed One, by any chance? <laughs> now, Nakula Pitta's answer is tremendous. It's amazing. He says, what else, sir, could it possibly be? I have just now been sprinkled, sprinkled by the Blessed One with the deathless ambrosia of a Dharma talk. Sprinkled with the deathless ambrosia of the Dharma. Isn't that amazing? Sprinkled. Sprinkled is abhisitta. That's the Pali, abhisitta, which also means anointed or consecrated, like a king gets consecrated. It's just like that. So it must be, I think, connected with the tantric term abhisheka, initiation. It's all of those things. And if you've ever been to a, an ordination ceremony, at some point, the, the person doing the ceremony picks up a vase. This is the initiation vase. And they pour drops of water on the top of the person's head who's just about to be ordained. What does that signify? They've been sprinkled with the deathless ambrosia of the Dharma. Deathless ambrosia, amatana, from the word amatar, which means deathless or undying. So there's no ambrosia in, in the original. The translators added that word, I suppose, because if you're going to sprinkle some, somebody with something, there has to be something to sprinkle. So he's put ambrosia in there. So the deathless ambrosia of the Dharma. But it's also connected to the Vedic idea, the ancient Vedic idea of the immortal gods. They possessed the vase of Amata or Amrita in Sanskrit, the nectar or ambrosia of immortality. So the Buddha changed that ancient Vedic meaning of Amata from immortal, everlasting life to the state beyond life and death beyond birth and death. That is to say, a state outside of time. So when Nakula, it's a hard word to say, Nakula Pitta tells Sariputra, I'd like to hear you say those two words one after another. 
when Nuklapita tells Sariputta that he's just been sprinkled with the deathless, he means that he's just gained deep insight as a result of the Buddha's teaching. Nakulapitta, got it right that time, has been transformed with such a simple teaching. Perhaps this is because of his amazing trust in the Buddha. The Buddha once pronounced Nakulapitta and his wife Nakulamata to be the most trusting of his labor disciples. So maybe it's his great trust in the Buddha that allowed that transformation to happen with just that line, that one line of teaching. Or perhaps, perhaps it's because he knew he was close to death. He was like the snake, ready to shed its skin. His body was old and worn out, and it was close to the time when he would have to discard it. So at the beginning of my talk, I said, returning, returning to our theme, the alchemy of the Dharma, that our base materials are greed, hatred and delusion, and that the gold we are trying to transform those base materials into is freedom from greed, hatred and delusion. And a few minutes ago, I made the point that this tells us only what we have to let go of, leave behind, but it doesn't tell us what we become. What is the gold exactly? What is the gold? I would like to suggest that it's Amata or Amrita, the ambrosia of the deathless. We could say that the Buddha sprinkled Nakula Pitta, Nakula Pitta with the gold of the deathless. He showered him in gold. Nakula Pitta became golden. On the day of the Buddha's death, his Parinirvana, someone gave the Buddha and Ananda each a set of golden robes and they put them on and then Ananda looked at the Buddha and he said it's amazing how clear and clear and bright your skin looks it's even brighter than the gold of your robes and the Buddha said yes there are two occasions when my skin appears like this like gold on the night of my awakening and on the night of my Parinirvana and tonight I'm going to enter Parinirvana and it's worth noting that all Buddhas in Mahayana Suttas, all Buddhas as far as I can make out, are golden. Gold is the colour of the deathless state. The deathless state. It's impossible to understand the deathless state with our minds as they are, with conceptual language. We can say it's a state beyond duality, we can say it's a state outside of time, both of which I have said, but they, they're just different words that don't really get us any closer to the experience. So I'm going to end this talk with an incident from a novel called The People's Acts of Love by James Meek. Meek's description of this incident may help us get a little closer to what it means to go beyond the duality of life and death and to approach the deathless, at least imaginatively. So the novel is set in Siberia in 1919, towards the end of the war. And in this point of the story, there's a Czech soldier, a Captain Mutz, and he's just been captured by a unit from the Red Army. And the commander of that unit of the Red Army, Bondarenko, has been given orders to execute anyone from Mutz's battalion because of an atrocity performed by that battalion in the Russian village sometime previously. So at the point in the story where we join them, Bondarenko has just told Mutz 
that he's going to execute him. He's going to shoot him. And they are walking from the train where he's being held to where he's to the place of his execution. So, this is what Meek writes. From the way the railway workers arranged themselves in the snow, he could tell that Bondarenko himself would shoot him and that less than a minute was given him to him to live. The sound of his feet in the snow was dear to him. It seemed to him that he owned it, that every particle of ice, ice belonged to him, and he was stricken with the urge to taste it. Wait, he said, before you shoot. We don't do that, said Bondarenko, stopping and turning round. We don't do last requests. Mutz foresaw his quickness. It was a man who'd shoot immediately once he'd drawn his pistol. There'd be no words, brisk. I'm thirsty, said Mutz. Let me put some snow on my tongue. Bondarenko didn't say anything and his hand didn't move towards his gun as Mutz kneeled down and cut a light heap of snow in his palm. He stood up and put his tongue into the cold powder. The ice crystals hurt and their taste went deep. Mutz the boy and Mutz the man recognised each other and for an instant he was engulfed by a joy so intense that he could hardly stand. He'd seen, on the threshold for a moment, a way to take the certainty of death and the great wonder of life and hold them in balance, neither denying the other and each casting light on the other. Death and life as both the rim and the core. Death gave life the beauty of finity, the infinite, the beauty of the edge line, and life, even a second of it, made death small. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Please help us keep this free. Make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. And thank you 